Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Not only is Bluehost Cloud our fastest web hosting available, but it's also built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode of Money Reimagined is sponsored by SIBO Digital. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. We're coming up on the holidays and as we do each year, we're taking the opportunity to showcase some of the best of this podcast from the year before. Today, it's up to me. I have two of my favorites for you. Typically for this, we'll highlight a few of the brainiac guests we have on this show. But this time, for my first pick from 2023, we're going to bring to you our very own Sheila Warren. Back in August, my co-host went off on one of the most engaging rants I've ever heard, describing a series of problems she'd had syncing her new laptop with Bluetooth, and then the subsequent result that she could no longer access Google Chrome. Sheila demonstrated the depths of a problem that we all share, our utter dependence on a few giant centralized tech companies in this case, of course, Google's owner, Alphabet. Running the episode now is especially timely because I'm speaking to you on December 12th, the day after Google lost what should prove to be a landmark case against Epic Games, as a jury ruled something that many of us have thought for a very long time, that the tech giant runs a monopoly in its Android app store. Think of that as you listen to this episode as Sheila Let's Fly. As always, there's just lots going on, Sheila. Yeah. You know, we maybe we can talk a little bit later about the ongoing saga that is Sam Bankman Freed. He's in jail now, of course, but he's now had to, he's now pled not guilty to his latest indictment. There's we had some news of Coinbase acquiring a stake in Circle, which has got people intrigued. Markets aren't looking so great. Bit of a weird, wild collapse in Bitcoin, and that's you know obviously a determinant of all sorts of other things. But look, you you came on. I don't know. I saw text messages from you before we started this. Said you were obviously in a bit of a bit of a mood, bit, a bit angry about a few <laughs> things. Yes. And you said you want to rant about a few things, and you talked about like comparing the United States to Japan and and maybe the regulatory framework in each country. I thought we can get you onto that, but it got me thinking that maybe we should. And whenever we do these you know two way things, the one on ones, that we should just have a section just called Sheila's rant. Uh, and I'm trying to think about what, <laughs> rant the, what of the, the week, the rant, rant of the week, week. <laughs> rant of the week. And I think like, always what, something the, to rant about. I, yes. I, I could just like a now, uh, I could bring like a you know now <laughs> BBC voice. It's time for <laughs> Sheila Warren's rant. Sheila, rant oh, away. Sheila, over to you. Uh, over to you, rant over to you please rant yeah, away, yeah. Sheila. But your your rant that that actually I thought you were going to rant about you know US v Japan. I was, but, but then it but was you joined us and you started talking about problems with <laughs> your so many things to with your Google connection on things that was actually undermining your ability to actually do things, which got me thinking that this is a perfectly good rant because it is a way to speak about the whole dependency on centralized platforms. So yes, yeah. Okay, let me let me just walk our listeners through the last hour of my life. So I, ha I have a new laptop. Yay me. Hooray. That's very exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was trying to do what I thought would be a fairly simple task of pairing my Bluetooth mouse with my new laptop, which you would think would just be a very simple click a couple of times and things are done. No, apparently not. 
So in the course of this, I restarted my laptop and now I don't have access to Google Chrome. I literally cannot use Google Chrome. I can't download it unless it comes from some place, whatever, mm. this, that. Look, bottom line is without Google Chrome, what the realization I was late to our recording today because without Google Chrome on my machine, I have to use my laptop, not my phone because I have a mic and I have to plug it in, whatever, for a variety of reasons. I, I'm dependent on my laptop for our particular, for Money Reimagined to record this podcast. And between Apple and Google and their willingness to interface in some ways and not others, et cetera, and then throw in Zoom, which is where we do our recordings for the podcast, I wasn't able to access my Zoom account. So then I had to like back into my <laughs> Zoom in a different way. And then I had to like reset a password. It was just like, you've got to be kidding me with this. Ugh. But all of that, I think, Michael, just it's just emblematic of the problem that I think we talk about, maybe not as pointedly as this. But more generally on this show, which is we are beholden in ways we don't even realize. Like, I, I mean, I'm at a point now where, thank goodness, I've got people on the back end working on, you know, figuring out how to get me Chrome. <laughs> yeah, you've got an army of people trying to. I, I, well, I wish I, I had like one person. But regardless, I've well, got someone helping me with this, you know, and it's going to figure it out on our IT support side. But without access to Chrome, I basically can't really do my job unless I'm mm. on my phone, in which case if I work on my phone for too long, I'm just going to like lose my eyesight, which is a whole other issue. You know, so it's just it's just um. <laughs> We're beholden in ways we don't even understand. Because when these things function, the point is that when these things function, we don't even realize how connected they are. Like, I don't know that I deliberately set my Zoom account up to run through Google, but at some point I did that or or someone did it for me is probably more likely what happened, to be very honest. But regardless, the whole thing just kind of falls apart. Mm -hmm. And yes, you can very deliberately choose. Like, I'm a very conscious about data person, right? And we've talked about this many times. So I do tend to use different kinds of browsers for other things, this and that. But when it comes to kind of hyper-efficient work product-oriented things, like we just default to the big platforms because mm-hmm. everyone else is on there. It's a lot easier. You can make different kinds of connections. We work in Google Docs, whatever it is, right? If those things don't function, the integrations are somewhat default. And if those don't function, your productivity takes a massive hit. But your ability, I think, to engage is really complicated. So it isn't even so much about data capture and control. It's about the ability to actually engage online, engage digitally in a meaningful way, which is is not, it's just, it's so beholden to these gigantic entities. And I find that today, I find it deeply irritating and annoying right. and frustrating. I want to throw my machine out the window. But as a general matter, it's highly problematic. Well, well, well the, the two are related, right? Like, it's not just that there's data capture going on. It's that they create such a level of dependency yes. and such an integration of all these other elements of your life it's full that, that the data is all the more rich from their point of view and, and therefore valuable from their point of view, right? So, yeah. I mean, it is all related. But yeah, there is this convenience of the network effect of everything tied together. The one that I often think about lately is is what's happened to email. So we we often talk about how, oh, at least email, right? SMTP, it's this independent protocol. And, you know, you can send an email to anybody on any, you know, email server anywhere. And then, you know, whatever whatever client they're using, you're fine, right? Well, uh, not so sure about that anymore because (laughs) everybody has Gmail, right? So so many corporate accounts are now just Gmail accounts. It is so big that Gmail's spam filtering system well, if if you if you happen to be a, from a smaller server, I mean, there's really not many left. People have Proton Mail for privacy, and there's a few Yahoo and, and a few others that are still there. Yeah. But any of the little any of the little guys, any independent email provider, um, you're going to be interpreted by Gmail's spam server as spam and just pushed out into the. Yep. Uh, so you're not going to get your stuff read because you're not using. So there's this backdoor way which Google has created control of what we thought was a at least an architecturally far more decentralized system. And that is problematic in addition to all of the other ways in which Google just sits there in the middle of our lives. When you're using Waze in your car, yeah. it's Google. If you've got Google uh-huh. Home, yep. you know, it's On Google. Devices. And you know, of course we can say the same about Amazon with, you know, Alexa and Prime and AWS and, and everything else. But this is the reality. We've built these dependencies. In yeah. fact, you know, as as the, anybody who listened to last week's episode will now know, I'm actually in the middle of writing a book with Frank McCourt. As I said then, more information will come about what it's really going to be about, but maybe it's going to come out in a drip form because I'll just offer this little tidbit. I mean, I'm just in the process of working on a chapter to try to like give it a little bit more context to what we mean in the book by this concept of 
of being a, a subject or a vassal in a sort of a, a new modern form of feudalism, as opposed to being a citizen in a kind of republic and a democracy. That yeah. you know, given that our information system is fundamental to who we are as a society, like it's critical to democracy, it's critical to a free market. If that information system is so controlled by these powerful platforms. And that they are using that data to then actually feed back on you to sort of direct you to what to read and what to say and how to behave and all that behavior modification stuff, which by now is very well documented, by the way. Then, in effect, we are we've lost agency. We've lost our our citizenship, yeah. right? So well, this it, is this concept yeah. of digital feudalism, and I think one of the ways to describe it is this, right? It's the same way that like, oh, you can't actually go to this part of the country unless the king lets you go there or uh, you know this dependency on the say so of some powerful lord is is very similar to to i think what we're at here right now and that's a cause for great concern i completely agree and i think what's what's really even more disturbing about it is unlike physical feudalism right where the, there are boundaries and markers and you physically could not cross like here it's it's very invisible and mm -hmm. so to your point about about gmail's ubiquity you know, I don't think most people think, I mean, most people know this, but I don't think people really realize that your domain name does not say anything about the corporate master behind the email account, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. uh, most most companies, to your point, in tech do use a Google interface. And so they have their own domain name of their own company. It's going to be whatever.com or whatever.org or whatever it is, but that's all run on the back end by Google. It's a Google account. It's all a Google workspace. Mm -hmm. And that's very common in tech, and, and and unless you're a competitor of Google, in which case you have your own interface that you're using, right? Microsoft being a great example of this. But regardless, I mean, there is almost complete capture of, of, of many parts of the ecosystem through that functionality, not to mention servers. AWS servers come up with some regularity, but the idea is that most companies are backended into an AWS server. AWS is actually a bigger uh, portion of, my, of Amazon's profits than um, Amazon, than the brick and mortar, the kind of the retail yeah. uh, facing part. And you can imagine, I mean, given how often the, the frequency of how people use Amazon.com to buy things, you can imagine if that's like a drop in the bucket compared to what AWS is making in terms of, of, uh, uh, of gross profit. It's just, it's pretty wild to think about that. But our entire digital infrastructure is really dependent in ways that when they break down, it's like, you have a day like I'm having today, you know, it's, it's really abundantly in your face and obvious how problematic that is. But when it functions well, it's something that is pretty invisible in ways that I think, mm -hmm. you know, regular feudalism, if you will, you know, was pretty in people's faces. It was a pretty yeah. obvious system. This is invisible to a lot of people. You don't think about it until it breaks down. And when it breaks down, yeah. you're just annoyed about it and you're frustrated because, you know, you can't, like, I'm a person who's incapable of not contextualizing things. But I think most people in my position today would just be very irritated and want to just fix it and move on. Yeah. Yeah. Without I'll, the reflection necessarily on you know yeah. what it means, right? Right. We were talking before like how this is actually very different from say a regular tool breaking down, right? This is not yeah. just getting a flat tire on your car and being annoyed with that. Uh, but but I think most people will see it that way. They'll just go, oh, damn it, my my yeah. you know this this, temporary this the dishwasher's got some you know right. problem with the <laughs> the detergent uh, rinsing function and that's it, right? But no, it's yeah. actually a very clear reflection of the dependencies that we're talking about. I'm glad you mentioned Amazon because we should recognize this is not just one company. There are yeah. a, a few of them that have these particularly powerful roles. But I'm going to go back to Google because I was thinking as you were saying this, one of the ones that like back in January, of course, there was the uh, the ruling from the Department of Justice that sued Google successfully for mo monopolizing digital advertising technologies. Right. And, and And like, yes, now there's been a response to that, thankfully. But it's just the very fact that we managed to create this system, I think, is one of the most clearest reflections of this power, right? So again, Google controls Chrome. Google is, is controls search. And so every aspect of how we actually find things and therefore all of the, the ways in which every single website is incentivized through search engine optimization, which is a buzzword that we journalists have to deal with every single freaking day. SEO. Um, SEO is designed to keep that Google algorithm happy. So all we are we are shaping the way we design our content and curate our content specifically to keep Google happy. So that's on the content side. But how is our content monetized? Well, regardless of whether or not it is on Google, it's like, you know, like it's not just Google ads, but our own ads themselves 
have to really play to the yeah. sort of the big Google network to our content and our ads because there's the there's the Google Ad Exchange, which has a sort of a domination of ad network technology to to actually broker that the the amount of space that's taken up inside the whole real estate of the internet by bringing the sell side uh, components together with the buy side, right? You've got folks who are publishers trying to give, sell that space and you've got folks who want to buy media space. Google sits right in the middle of it because it's engineered this perfect ecosystem in which you have no choice but to sit in the middle of it. Why this isn't looked upon as something that is, I don't know, 10, 20 times worse than Standard Oil was or in rubber barons and the uh, the thing that led to the antitrust movement and you know Teddy Roosevelt's very important laws at the turn of the century, it, it baffles me. We've never seen anything like this level of monopolistic control over uh, over our economy. Well, I think it is in part because a lot of it is, as we were discussing, it's it's somewhat invisible. People don't really realize the interconnections and the way that this, you know, it kind of reminds me of this show 30 Rock, which probably most of our listeners are familiar with. Mm-hmm. And there was this running joke of like the corporate map, right, of of 30 Rock and who owned the studio and, and the fact that they owned like, was it microwaves or whatever it was, but it all <laughs> rolled up to this one central company. And Alex Baldwin character, which Jack Donaghy was his character, would joke a lot about the fact that everything rolled up to this one company and there were all these different things. And they were all, you know, they would do um, product placement of the other kinds of, you know, parts of the company and whatnot. But when it comes to our online world, people just don't really they don't even understand the different things that go into making these services possible, right? And how they all interconnect. Mm-hmm. And I also think that there is an element of uh, just straight up embarrassment. Like I think most people, you know, like like I am beyond this in my personal life, but I'd say probably a decade ago, if, when everything failed on my laptop like this morning, I would have been like, oh my God, it's user error. Um, I did something wrong. I messed it up. Now I'm like, no, I know it's not me because I'm sophisticated as, a, as an internet user at this point. And I know what is me and what what is a, PEPCAC issue, as they say, problem exists between keyboard and computer, right? And what is not? Mm-hmm. And I know this is not. But in many cases, people feel a level of tech illiteracy or embarrassment around it because they don't understand it. They don't. They, mm. they know they don't understand it. They don't really get it. There's nothing visual about it that you can really process. You just know it's not working and you feel an immediate, it's part of partially the addiction of it. You feel stress. You feel a tremendous amount of stress that you're not able to get this thing to function. And then you feel, I think, according with that embarrassment and shame. And this has been documented by many sociologists that when people's tech is not working, they feel shame and embarrassment in ways they don't hmm. feel when their microwave fails or they get a flat tire or whatever. They don't have that level yeah. of anxiety and shame That's around really it, which they do, right? Which they have when their online well, so tools it, aren't working. It's another form of control and in terms yeah. of like, um, like trust, trust us, we got this because we know you don't get this. Like that differentiation is dividing, right. dividing. You don't understand this. You don't and you can't. You have to trust right? and you can't, right? So, and we build up that, even if you could easily just by building up that expectation that you can't, by holding out these tech geniuses as sort of the lords of everything, you can only yeah. only ones who can get it. We build that expectation, and therefore we um, ultimately lock ourselves into again more dependency. I think that that's really well. And what problem. I find even more challenging about this, right? Just to take this out, go out even one more layer, is when we think about how this is affecting a lot of the ways that elites think about education, and not just elites, but really, but the way that the focus on technical mastery being a coder, all this stuff is now considered, you know, uh, the pinnacle of educational achievement in many ways. And there's some backlash against this around liberal arts education. You need to have other kinds of skills and talents and creativity, and all these kinds of things that really matter. I think anyone who's been in tech for a long time will tell you that the EQ component is the thing that really makes or breaks a career in tech, not so much your technical ability or capacity to, to do things like code. Nevertheless, the emphasis on that, I think, on the one hand, it's important to be competitive, right, in the global economy. That is certainly an important thing. But the overemphasis, I would say, on it, it, it reinforces this concept. So A, as demographics get older, there's a sense that, well, I'm too old to understand this. It's too complicated for me, you know, whatnot. My oldest kid and I are watching this show called Abbott Elementary. Highly recommend. It's phenomenal. But we're going back and rewatch- I'm rewatching Abbott Elementary. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It won 10 billion Emmys. We're going back and rewatching season one, and it's really funny. But there's an older teacher who's been teaching for many, many years. And there's an episode we just watched last night that's called something like Tech or whatnot, New Tech or something like that. And they bring in this uh, tablets, right? And they're like, this is how you're going to teach your kids to read. They're going to use these tablets and you're going to do all this stuff. And the older teacher, who's probably in her I don't know, 40s or whatnot, she's not that old, but relatively speaking, you know, she is like, I don't know how to do this. And she just kind of like does an end run around the technology and winds up 
coding in that her kindergartners are reading at like fourth grade level. Okay, so of mm-hmm. course there's an assembly and they want to prove it's really funny. It's a great episode. Mm-hmm. But in part of it, you know, I think she talks about having a Hotmail account, all this stuff, right? But I was watching that and I was thinking about this idea that we have basically created a generation of people and we've kind of told them and shamed them into thinking that they are just not capable of understanding these technologies. And in countries, I think, where you're getting older and older versus younger and younger, there's this kind of flip, right? This flip has happened where not only do we prize youth and vigor and all that kind of thing, but we also think there's something about their brains that makes them more capable of understanding how a computer works or how an online which is just absolute nonsense. That's just completely untrue. It makes no sense whatsoever. If anything, the logic that uh, underlies how a lot of these systems work is something that age and experience actually are helpful in, in comprehending, right? Because you understand systems, you can be a systems thinker the older that you get. So uh, I find all of this kind of cultural framing of tech and our dependence on tech equally challenging to how complicated tech itself is, which what? is not to say that tech is not complicated. It, it is to some extent, but it's not, it's not, yeah. unparsable by anyone, frankly. We hit on something there that I think is really, uh, and I do want to get to to another quick rant before we go, because I can run this out, but <laughs> to a different topic. But but I, you said systems Rant all day, today. my friend. <laughs> system thinking, which I think is really important here, because to me, the biggest insight that I think I've had, and I really do believe that being in the blockchain space has allowed me to think about these things, about what is wrong with this Web2 world, these mm. centralized platforms, is the business model, right? Is the idea that there are literally incentives amongst everybody to keep drilling down on this model and building out essentially a system of data extraction, you know, this this abusive, manipulative system that we have, because it pays, because everybody's locked into that system. And I don't and I think one of the things that I find talking to my daughter sometimes about this is that she knows there's something big, bad, and, and, and wrong about this. And yeah, she yeah. she gets tech as well. And she's comfortable using you know a, a whole range of technology. But she doesn't have that economic understanding, I don't think, of business models of thinking through right. about well, yes. what is, what's driving Wall Street, what's driving capital, where is the actual profit motive that's driving all this. That is definitely something that you acquire as an older person, right? And so in some respects, what you're talking about as well is a system that prevented those of us who have that knowledge, that EQ, that that broader knowledge of systems, from being able to then apply it to this model. Oh, it's it's tech. I, I can't. I couldn't. Yeah. But you know what? If you would have, how could that I possibly? Back, yeah, yeah. You would see the same old stuff, right? Yeah. That we've seen for years that drives business decisions, that leads to these extractive, broken systems. That's yeah. kind of where the book's going to be all about. By the way, anyway, look. The segue I'll try to pull off here is, of course, I. Thoroughly believe we need not just blockchain technology, but a range of other decentralizing mechanisms that will require perhaps some centralization as well, but to redesign this whole thing. And that's where the policy challenges come into place because we really need to be thinking creatively about enabling these technologies to develop in the right environment to emphasize what's truly decentralized. And of course, you know, you've been looking at different models around the world. Uh, and the U.S. is is really lagging. I you know, I keep writing about it, and um, and so yep. now we've got Japan somehow strangely leading the way here. <laughs> well, that was saying. my original rant. So I just got back from family vacation in Japan. Ten out of ten, eleven out of ten, recommend. Phenomenal. It was really amazing, even with the really little kids. Um, and part of the reason it was so incredible is just the infrastructure. And so not only I immediately noticed a couple of things since my last trip, which was in 2019, which is a work trip. A, the transit system has gotten even more efficient and effective, which is remarkable considering mm. in the United States, our transit is just, I mean, yay, infrastructure bill and all of that. Like, but that's a long time coming. And, and oh my God, that's a whole mm-hmm. battle it's going to be fought and how that all gets implemented. But, uh, you know, grateful for at least a step in the right direction. But also the accessibility, uh, just the way that accessibility is, is modeled into urban design is something I just found remarkable. And I live in San Francisco and we're pretty thoughtful about these things here. But it is, my kids were asking like, oh, why is there this thing there? Why is this mm-hmm. thing over here? Why is there this sound? Or why is there this bumpy, you know, thing in the road or whatever it is? And I was like, that's all for people who are visually impaired, mm-hmm. right? And it's just built into urban design in a way that I found remarkable. I, I don't think I've seen that as prominently a feature of urban design anywhere my, my, else. My co-author, Frank McCourt, would be loving, I mean, he's going to get to listen to this episode. He'd be loving to hear this because this is this idea about 
yeah. building architecture with people in mind, right? That's exactly As opposed right. to the company that runs things. It's truly human-centered, right? And part of that look is the demographics in Japan. We talked about demographics. And the internet was built for machines, not humans. This is one of the problems. Yeah. That's exactly right. So looking at, I mean, AI, for that matter, was built as a tool to help, you know, make, it's machine learning, right? So just put there, <laughs> leave it there and say what you will. I think, though, that there's a demographic thing there. There are older people in Japan. It's an older demographic. There are fewer and fewer children uh, being born in Japan to the point that the government's providing incentives for people to actually have more children to kind of try to alter and adjust the demographics. Uh, so there's a real practical need for this. But imagine if this were the default in everywhere in the world. It, sh- it should be. There's really no reason. And I looked a little bit because I'm a nerd into the kind of cost, you know, structure behind all of that. And it's marginal. It's negligible if you do it from the beginning and do it intentionally. So I, I've always loved Japan. I used to run an office in Japan and have many Japanese colleagues in my last role. Um, and we, of course, have engaged in Japan at CCI as well, because to, the, to your point that you were making earlier, it is quite robust and thoughtful in how it's thinking about crypto regulation in ways that I find very impressive, especially around NFTs uh, and stablecoin as well. Uh, but regardless, I hadn't been there as like a tourist, you know, and as like a regular person in quite some time. And it was just a remarkable experience. And I, I can't say that I came back uh, overly impressed by the American offerings <laughs> in these in these areas like infrastructure and accessibility, which I have not been, you know, historically, but I was even more deeply unimpressed when when I was faced with the parallel option of what could be with a little bit of mm. imagination, a little bit of political I'd, will. I'd love it. to really understand some of the aspects of Japanese culture that that makes this sort of instinctive recognition of building for use and for humans uh, so like automatic almost, because there's one little example that I just thought was so fascinating. If you walk through the streets of Tokyo and look down, I don't know if it's right across the city, but certainly in, in, in a number of them, you'll see manhole covers in the, sometimes in the footpath. And each one has its own little design with yeah. colors and artwork yep. in it. Somebody yep. decided that it would be of interest to the society to have artwork that was differentiated across each of the manhole covers, right? That, that's a unique thing to decide yeah. to do. And it's, it's, it's a lovely a, thing to decide. It's to a do, lovely right? thing to decide to do, right? It, it brings a whole new experience to being walking outside and looking down and being part of the, 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 the environment yeah. that you're in, right? It's, it's fascinating. It's something really quite magical about that capacity. I mean, look, Japan's got lots of problems as well. Let's not get- Yeah, no, cul- no culture, no country is perfect. Uh, but on an infrastructure you know. level, it was really hard to argue with the manifestation of a vision that really did put people and their needs at the center of the plot. You know, there's a, a place uh, called the, the Shibuya, Shibuya Crossing, which is the busiest intersection in the entire world. It's like they got the most uh, foot traffic of any intersection, apparently, in the entire world. And so we, of course, my kids wanted to see that and they wanted to cross it multiple times and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it just functions. It just functions. And you look across a city like that and you think about what that would look like in, in many other cities in the world. And it's, it's uh, suffice to say, it's not the same experience. <laughs> just not the same yeah. experience. Right. It's organized. Part of that's cultural. Part of that is a cultural politeness, which has its own challenges, right? I'm not here to say that. I'm not here to, to laud any particular aspect of that or anything else. I think there's, you know, individualism is not as highly prioritized. That has its own challenges. But nevertheless, just from a straight up urban infrastructure perspective, it was pretty hard to argue with how it functioned, how it was maintained, how efficient it was. All of those things I found not only admirable, but really um, compelling. And so, Coming back, I have to say, uh, you know, I, I'll be in D.C., New York and San Francisco. And none of those cities, uh, I'm sorry to say, have anything to compete right. with, uh, no, with what no, Tokyo's no. got on offer. So there you have Alrighty, it. There, there you have it. Well, that was actually less of a rant and more of a kind of a bit of a... a wistful know, observation. Wistful, yeah, and a, and, a, and a little bit of an acknowledgement, a love song, if you like, almost to Japan, which is, I, I, I must say, I, I love the place, the food. I love going to those little cocktail bars where the guy will spend like, you know, 10 minutes gently stirring you a martini. Uh, There's something very, really unique about it. All right. I'll wrap up there. Hopefully this meandering conversation uh, has actually landed in a place that our uh, listeners found. Hopefully it'll it'll lead to people thinking a little bit more about intentionality. When I think about Japanese culture, the number one thing that comes up to me is intentionality and intentionality and how we engage online intentionality and how we engage with each other intentionality and how we build in our infrastructure, both digitally and physical, uh, all those things I think can only benefit us as a society. And I just don't know that that is a 
uh, I think the intentionality is there uh, in our digital environment based out of the U.S., but it is mm-hmm. intentionality to your point around a particular business model, which is not one that necessarily puts people and their needs and their desires at the center of, of anything. Well, the connection between the two ideas is the physical infrastructure in Japan being yeah. built with its intentionality for humans. And like we need to really start to think heavily about the infrastructure of the internet, our, our digital infrastructure exactly. being built with humans uh, in mind. And, and that is a major challenge that every one of us needs to be confronting right now. Do you have a trusted partner for your crypto trading? Cebo Digital will introduce financially settled margin futures on Bitcoin and Ether January 11th, 2024, with physically delivered contracts to follow, listed and cleared on Cebo's US regulated exchange and clearinghouse, and complemented by a liquid crypto spot market for greater ease and access. We invite you to learn more about this and all applicable risk disclosures at slash coindesk. That's slash coindesk. Now, for my second pick from 2023, I want to reshare an episode Sheila and I recorded with Troy Cross, professor of philosophy and humanities at Reed College and a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute. Troy is a dyed-in-the-wool environmentalist, so it's fascinating to hear how he comes at the ethics of Bitcoin and its environmental impact from a philosophical point of view. His journey from discovering Bitcoin to rejecting it out of ethical concerns to then rediscovering its promise when he came up with a more complex understanding of the overall environmental impact is well worth a listen. Now, this is the way the market works. You know, over time in this gradual way by mining uh, and because you're sort of like picking up otherwise wasted fuel and, and so forth in a, in a kind of an incremental way, you are contributing to managing climate change, particularly if you follow your philosophical way of balancing these yeah. things out. However, the world faces a much bigger problem than that, right? And, and it is that we need actually to really rapidly reduce carbon. And I've always been fascinated, intrigued by the idea, I suppose, that if we were to get everybody looking at Bitcoin for what it is and seeing it as a kind of an unstoppable economic system in the same way we look at weather or conceiving of it as a thing that you cannot shut down and therefore, how do I actually work with it as opposed to against yes. it? then you would drive policy, it would try to create incentives and structures to make sure that that, that mining actually did, or at least the, that the marginal cost of energy would consistently fall in favor of renewable energy, right? So I, there wouldn't be subsidies of, of dirty fuel and, and so forth. And there'd be international systems to try to, but you would use Bitcoin as a way to actually underwrite that development of the cheaper stuff. But you need policy yeah. to be in the middle of it. And for that, we need the narrative to change. So the yeah. other day, we're actually, yes. we're actually yes. captured less by the economics and by the, by the physicality of this whole problem as we are by the narrative. Because the narrative is, is the Sierra Club's take on it, is the Biden yeah. administration's take on it. And the more yeah. that we do that, the well, less of an opportunity we have to actually take advantage of this like force in a positive this, way. This is this has sort of like been my struggle, and I have not in any way succeeded, and I do not have the answer to this because we're up against a kind of relentless media push, and of course a push by Greenpeace USA uh, with Chris Larson's uh, five million. I wish I had a way, a, a simple way to flip the narrative, but I don't. I have stories, and then I have statistics. The stories that I like to tell are about what, for instance, we're doing with methane capture. Methane is 84 times as warming as CO2 over a a 20-year period, and it's uh, 25 times as warming over a 100-year period. And we right now have have a lot of uh, miners who are using waste methane in some way as fuel to mine Bitcoin. The biggest uh, implementations of this are like by Crusoe Energy on the oil fields where we're we're converting uh, stacks, which now flare the gas inefficiently at, say, 91% efficiency. We're converting those to 99% efficiency and thereby eliminating more methane. That's somewhat complicated because people are like, yeah, but that gives revenue to uh, oil companies. Very minimal revenue, but it does. I think of it as just a much cheaper flare stack that is a better flare stack. But also, and this is kind of more exciting to me, uh, we have methane uh, that is simply venting on landfills. Mm. And right now, the, the methane just just goes straight into the air. It's not it's not even flared on a, on quite a few uh, landfills in in the U.S. 
And I'm working with companies that are trying to pay for gas capture systems mm -hmm. and uh, actually install a very expensive CapEx. It's like $50,000 an acre to capture the methane uh, and then uh, and then mine Bitcoin with it uh, and until interconnection arrives to these landfills. And these are spread throughout uh, the Midwest, for instance, in pretty de economically depressed regions. Uh, so there's like a humanitarian story here and there's a methane capture story. Yeah. What the UN calls our, our strongest lever in the fight against climate change. And Bitcoin mining is really ideally suited because of its location agnosticism and scalability to sort of find the the methane leak wherever they are. The latest I found was Turkmenistan, which is unbelievable mm -hmm. amount of, of methane. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, you can sort of view these sa satellite maps and just basically send in the miners like, uh, you know, like paratroopers to like zap mm -hmm. these huge leaks of methane. That's an incredible narrative, which if you just think like Bitcoin yeah. bad, you're going to completely miss this stuff. Yeah. But I think so. I'll just tell you. I mean, so I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that CCI does have a big paper we've been pulling together over almost a year now that documents these use cases of where Bitcoin mining is actually neutral to positive. And so we did a round of that at Sarah Week, you know, a little bit ago, which is the giant energy conference. We actually had an episode of this podcast with some folks who were talking about methane capture and these kinds of things and flaring and whatnot. But that's going to come out in a couple of weeks all, with all the use cases really well researched and described and all of that. And I think you know it, the issue isn't so much that people don't believe those stories or believe those use cases because the evidence is there and, and people who push into it do that. The, the, the challenge, of course, in the United States is with everything is the politics of it. And to your point about oil company revenue, that's a huge political issue. Yeah, it is. It's a huge political issue. And so even though the numbers are what they are and the facts are what they are, the politics of it are really, really complicated. And the politics yeah. of climate and energy in the United States are extraordinarily complicated. And so one thing that we say when we meet with a lot of folks who are in the environmental and climate change community is, you know, what what is what is the goal? If the goal is a global goal of reduction, then you have one approach. If the goal is not in the US or more NIMBY in an approach, then you have a different approach, right? And the kinds of case studies that, that we pulled together that you're talking about today really predicate are predicated on that global goal of comprehensive reduction more in line with kind of, you know, a COP. And certainly when you look around the world, you see Central Asia immediately illuminated as just a huge problematic space in terms of, you know, emissions, all kinds of things, right? But also cheap. And so the narrative right now, I think, is that Bitcoin mining is going to go where it's cheap. Not necessarily that it's going to be, it can be incentivized to go where it's clean or where it's actually productive in terms of overall reductions. And that I think is the piece that is sometimes gets missed because a lot of folks who go in talking about the positive opportunity aren't telling this kind of global story in a way that is relevant to politicians who are focusing on their jurisdiction and are driven by what their constituents and voters want, which is a narrower thing. It's, I couldn't agree more. Challenge, systemic challenge that I don't know how. I don't have a solution to that. To I mean, that. I couldn't agree more. And I, I saw this, especially in the New York state legislation, where they literally have a provision that says we cannot meet our climate targets at the expense of global climate targets. And I had this discussion with the Office of Science and Technology Policy as well. This is a failure of carbon accounting and the Paris Agreement, because if what you do, if all you do is have a local target and you can meet that through offshoring the production of goods that you then import, then it's just sort of a signaling mechanism of virtue for nations to meet their targets and doesn't actually make a difference. I think what's powerful about Bitcoin is that these incentives are endogenous to the system. What Bitcoin mining incentivizes, and this is why like, I have my idea, and that's kind of what got me public, but bigger than my idea is this thought that you just said, Sheila, which is that Bitcoin mining will be driven to the cheapest power in the world, and then any consequence of its consumption of energy will be the consequence of consuming the cheapest energy in the world. And how long will this take to happen? Well, we're already seeing it happening. It's happening rapidly. And I'll just say, unless we have a price explosion, post-havening, you're going to see Bitcoin miners decimated. In a good way, unless they have super cheap power, super cheap power consumption is good for energy systems and for the environment. I think we have the wrong sort of moral that about power consumption, which is a scarcity model, but it's also a it's a conservation model. We have a scarce resource, power. We must conserve it. That's not how electricity works. Electricity immediately disappears if you don't use it. And the kind of systems we're moving to produce a ton of electricity that we are not going to be able to use in any other way. That's because we're going to triple el electricity generation over the next 20, 25 years. We're going to triple or quadruple or even quintuple electricity generation 
We're going to do that with intermittent sources of activity that don't adjust to our demand. So when you ask the question, what is the effect on energy systems, on the environment of Bitcoin mining, you need to say, what's the effect of something that's going to pay one, two cents a kilowatt hour, if that, for power? Mm. And I think that's actually positive. And to your point, Michael, about the timing, yes, the urgency is real, but I don't see anything else really that's that kind of a excellent subsidy uh, for, right. for cheap stranded energy. In fact, we just step out of the way, it's going to do it. It's going to work. Exactly. Right. I, I think that's okay. Yes. I kind of wanted to go move, move faster. And what, what more can we as a society do to do it? And I think about the thing that we're, that we're not forgetting about, but is the kind of other element to this is like, why do we have Bitcoin at all? Right. And this is where you get this whole debate about, like, you know, okay, energy use, uh, regulating energy use for a particular use case is like passing judgment on that use case when in fact, like, you know, are Christmas lights more of a, of a threat? You know, is that more of a wasteful activity than Bitcoin? And if you believe Bitcoin is valuable, so the question is, what is Bitcoin valuable for, right? And I think that much of the narrative, much of the negative narrative is based on the assumption that people look oh, at yeah. it and go, this is a wasted activity. There's nothing beneficial in this, which then brings us all the way back to, okay, why? Why do we think it matters? And I've always came in into it from the financial inclusion level. I always thought of it as something that was valuable. I've in Argentina, as everyone hears me say over and over again. For six years, and I saw this as something that resolved a fundamental problem in a monetary system of a place like that, and then looked at you know Africa and elsewhere. So I've, I've, I've often thought like it would be much easier to tell not only the story of Bitcoin's benefits, but also of its environmental benefits if those two things coincided. So I've always like at one stage I was very excited because Block, and I don't know whether the Block are, are, are still doing this, but they were they were getting interested in attaching Bitcoin mining to the expansion of decentralized solar microgrids and putting them in sort of like developing countries and figuring out, okay, here's now not only is it's a cheap you've got a cheap source of energy that you are encouraging people to use a renewable source in these you know remote marginalized communities, and you're subsidizing it through Bitcoin, which gives them also on top of that an, an extra sort of financial tool to use, and you just see this wonderful kind of positive feedback loop of what comes out of that. And I was specifically yep. thinking about the of El Salvador, right? Because yep. Salvador, yep. that's how I want to see it. Instead, what you get in El Salvador is a state-owned volcano mine. I know. Right? And all the Bitcoiners are cheering this thing. It's not. That is just feeding back in the narrative of a dictator. As opposed to like, how do we actually sort of get these two narratives to come together? Unfortunately, I feel like we're not, we're not there. Grand scale rather than this micro scale. It's coming. It's coming. Yeah. I had the same thought that you just articulated. And I was working with a company that was trying to bring solar-powered microgrids. They were already building solar-powered microgrids in Africa. They were thinking about whether other mining could accelerate the process of rolling those out to communities in Africa particularly. And uh, at the time, this was like a year ago, the break-even prices were high enough and CapEx was expensive enough that their machines would just depreciate too fast with a low uptime in that scenario. And I had this idea of like, hey, we've got an e-waste problem, supposedly, although that doesn't really exist, uh, of machines at the end of their lifespan. Why don't we get big miners to donate their their S9s at the end of life to your microgrid and we'll hmm. like solve everybody's problem. Hmm. And, um, and then everything kind of collapsed. But that is happening, not quite yet with solar microgrids, although we will get there, but it's happening with micro hydro in yeah, Malawi hydro, and yeah. in Kenya. Those are incredible stories and it's only going to expand. As I said, as the margins come down, uptime matters less. And uptime is the big enemy of solar mining with solar. And so we will get there. But right now, it's micro hydro telling that story. I think more generally, the future of mining is just the cheapest energy. And so think about where that is and what it looks like. I agree with you that like subsidies could shape how things go. But more and more, as you see Bitcoin as a global force, it, it kind of eats up and spits out subsidies. It, it, it ate up and spit out subsidies in Inner Mongolia and in China, and that's part of why it was banned. It did the same thing in Kazakhstan. And then, you know, it's like if you make power cheap somewhere, the miners will just flock to you and, until you have exhausted your subsidy. It's a wild tool. It's, a, it's almost a perfect tool of carbon arbitrage and a perfect destruction of subsidy. I'm thinking about subsidies I would like. It's like, think about things that would generally help a greener grid demand response participation right. and flexibility. Subsidize it not for Bitcoin, but just in general. And that would immensely help like make freer markets in electricity. Bitcoin miners were well positioned to take advantage of it. How about uh, carbon capture credits for, uh, say, methane? Uh, if you can reward carbon capture, Bitcoin will help you take, take advantage of that. Right? So think about basically pro-energy subsidies that you need anyway for infrastructure and for 
climate, mm-hmm. make those in an industry neutral way, Bitcoin will find a way to get in there and take advantage of some of those subsidies and deliver you a social good. One more thing, back to why Bitcoin matters and its value. Of course, I run into this constantly. Why does it matter and is it worth anything? And a lot of the critique is like, we shouldn't spend a single watt on Bitcoin because it's just for gambling, right? Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to know how to respond to that except to say, you know, check your financial privilege on the one hand and put put yourself in the shoes of somebody who doesn't have good money, but also think about the philosophical commitment that you are tacitly endorsing here, which is that there is some system of social value that you can divine and other people disagree with you and they're just flat out wrong and they're going to derive policy recommendations around your vision of value. Do you really want to go down that road? Like you mentioned Christmas lights, but just literally Think about how, particularly in the US, we squander power at an ungodly rate. The comparisons across nations and industries, everything compels in comparison to just living a normal American life. The logical conclusion of this strategy would be to label every activity with a social value score, some kind of you know coefficient, then have a tax that have a tax that doesn't just tax energy, but taxes uses of energy in accordance with how socially useful they are. So hospitals would pay zero, but then Christmas lights would pay, you know what I mean? Kind of with what energy subsidies and taxation are about, right? I mean, that is, there is an underlying social assessment that's happening. Anytime you tax anything or subsidize anything, you're basically saying that thing is worthy of being extra taxed or being subsidized. And I think there is a value judgment there. And that's what the entire system of taxation and subsidy is based upon. Hold on, I I think you have to say there's a big difference here between taxing energy which has an externality, which is a judgment, and taxing a particular use of energy. I think those are two radically different things. I agree with you. I agree with you. But I think we have an entire system of subsidies and taxation in around the world. Every government has a system of that. And it's ultimately, it's predicated on some kind of value judgment. Of it, course. It just is, that's, right? And so That's inherent to the Gubian That is tax. inherent to the system. It's inherent to the system. So to say that there's going to be a taxation or subsidy scheme that is not values-laden, I think, I don't think that's inc- I don't think that's correct. The question is what values are underlying that. And that's the question I kind of want to get to sure. here, which is, you know, part of the challenge I think around that Bitcoin has uh, optically is that it is perceived as a full-on truly libertarian to the point of almost, you know, exit systems altogether uh, philosophy that underlies it. And I'm curious as an actual philosopher, you know, who's been in this space Do you agree with that? Because I actually disagree with that. I'll just kind of put that out there. I actually think that there are a lot more political positions one could have and be quite supportive of the Bitcoin proposition. But nevertheless, the optics remain that the dominant philosophical modality is hyper, I would almost say, libertarianism. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's compatible with a wide range of of philosophies and political philosophies. Uh, I, I'm mystified by there's agreement both among hardcore Bitcoiners and also the Bitcoin's most severe critics that it is somehow married to libertarianism. And it's like, no, uh, how do you, th- <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do you think about the internet? Do you think the internet is uh, inherently libertarian? Are we living in a libertarian society just because we have the internet? Fundamentally, what Bitcoin allows you to do is to send value peer to peer. And it also allows you to store value in a way that cannot be debased by a central bank. And if your philosophy is committed to uh, not allowing people to send value to one another or not allowing to be able to save in a way that a central bank cannot debase, then you will be against Bitcoin. That's it. I mean, anything more than that is a fabrication. And I, and I have to say also that the image of Bitcoin and what we're talking about is really limited to an American context, a European context. I think that we're, if you look at where actual Bitcoiners are and who is dealing in Bitcoin, uh, still, uh, probably the majority is in Asia, right? It's probably in like a lot of it's in China still. 20% of the mining is still in China. That's what happens when you ban mining in China. 20% <laughs> still there, according to Cambridge. But there's a lot in Vietnam. There's a lot in Korea. And there's a lot in, in Africa. There's a lot of use in Nigeria. Uh, you know, there's it's Turkey, it's Lebanon. Do they associate Bitcoin with libertarianism or is it just a way to get around capital controls? Well, I guess that is kind of libertarianish. Is it just a way to survive in the face of, of a debasing currency in Argentina, right? I think this is incredibly US and Eurocentric and almost a luxury to think of Bitcoin, this technology, as married to a particular narrow political philosophy, which I don't subscribe to myself, never have. I agree. I, I think that's such a great place to leave us. And I think that 
part of what's happening with policy in the United States is that, you know, Bitcoin is being caught up in the very zero sum political environment that we have, which whether it's state versus federal or party versus party or, you know, one arm of a party versus another arm of a party in some cases, right? It's caught up in the entire climate debate, which is extraordinarily political in the United States, whether people acknowledge that or not. I know. But interestingly enough, like there are actually more agreement that I see in sort of far right and far left circles on certain climate issues than there are in, 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 across other kinds of politics. So everything is just wild right now. But fundamentally, I do think the narrative is caught up in a very Western-centric view of the world. Um, which is not shared by the vast majority of the population of the world. And that is an important reminder, I think, for everyone. It's also the reason why any Bitcoin banning sort of activity that happens in the United States is not going to uh, really change a lot of the dynamics around uh, mining or around any of this. It's simply going to push this activity to other places that may or may not be open to supporting, Troy, the models like the one that you propose here. As always on this show, you know, we try to kind of contextualize things, not just within any particular political moment, but kind of think about the bigger picture. And I, I think that what you just said at the end there is exactly is dead on. And this is far bigger than one political philosophy. It's far bigger than one country's politics or even one state's politics. Uh, and it would, I think, be uh, it would behoove us to to remember that <laughs> as we as we engage in these kinds of conversations. Yeah. The, yeah. the question is, how, how quickly can we kind of get to that point where we move beyond the sort of the politicization of it, because it does feel at the moment as if we've gone backwards. That's all for this special holiday edition. Come back next week for Sheila's. Don't forget to subscribe as well. Give us a thumbs up or leave a review. We do truly value your feedback. Make sure that you share your thoughts with us at podcast at coindesk.com using the subject line Money Reimagined. We certainly look forward to hearing from you. And tune in every week now through the holiday season and into next year on the Coindesk Podcast Network or find our Money Reimagined feed on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. So that's all for now. Have a wonderful holiday season and new year. Bye for now. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.